It's Pete. The 25th of January, 2023, marks the 25th anniversary of my father's death. And by a strange, and I've always thought beautiful coincidence, the 25th anniversary of his final sermon. On the last Sunday in January 1998, the Reverend Gilbert J. Horn, co-pastor of the Montview Boulevard Presbyterian Church in Denver, read the gospel lesson and then preached on it for two church services and taught a Sunday school class before succumbing to esophageal cancer at home that afternoon. He was 57. But back to church that morning where today's audio was captured. It happened to be Super Bowl Sunday and the Denver Broncos would be facing the Green Bay Packers in San Diego in a few hours. From the standpoint of a preacher in Denver trying to get Denver congregants into the pews, this was a challenge. What was my dad's marketing solution? Exploiting the familiar trope of the football player who tells the sports reporter that Jesus is his quarterback, Dad titled his sermon, Jesus Playbook. Today's show, a sermon from 1998 about football. Some, of course, may object to football as a metaphor for the Christian life. Columnist George Will complains that it combines the two worst things about America. Football, he writes, is violence punctuated by committee meetings. Or maybe a sermon just pretending to be about football. We're talking about why a quarterback sneak works time and time again. Why there's always a fake or two or three in every game that seems to go off rather well. You and I see what we expect to see. What we are trained to see. What we are looking for. All of our short-sightedness and bias and prejudice stem from this kind of blindness. From my first teacher of civil discourse. Oh, what a blessing it would be if the next space shuttle took all the pollsters to the moon. Now, now this is a bigoted statement because, of course, it's a glittering generalization. But I frankly see very little difference between making determinations by anonymous polling and giving ourselves over to mob rule. It cancels thoughtful investigation and reasoned debate. It is the blind leading the blind. And as Jesus says, when that happens, all of us fall into a ditch. The Reverend Gilbert J. Horn at the top of his game. Oppression happens only when the rules are bent or broken. We talk all the time about a level playing field, and the more I hear people talk about it, the more I wonder what it is they really want. Dear brothers and sisters, the playing field is level. Creation is good. God is love. The rules are the same for everyone. Oppression happens only when we ignore that. 
When we take unfair advantage, when we cut corners or sell short or water down the product or kick the other guys, well, you get my point. My dad learned the value of the Jewish tradition of yard site from the rabbis who were among his closest friends. Yartzeit is the Yiddish word meaning the anniversary of a death, a time to slow down, light a candle, and consider the life and legacy of a loved one. This month, approaching my dad's 25th Yartzeit, I knew I wanted to do something special to mark the occasion. I really wanted to listen to the tape of his last sermon again, which I did for maybe the first dozen or so January 25ths after he died. But the cassette tape it was captured on, not high quality to begin with, was so frail that it nearly broke the last time I tried, so I was a little scared. Fortunately, my exceedingly thoughtful wife Robin not too long ago gave me a piece of audio equipment expressly for the purpose of digitizing my old analog cassettes, so I figured why not give it a shot. As you know already, it worked. Blessings abound. What you'll hear in just a moment is not only my father's final sermon, but probably his best, insofar as it encapsulated, in just over 16 minutes, the most important elements of his theology as it had evolved over years of continuing study and continuous effort to put the gospel into practice. Beginning in 1965, the Reverend Gilbert J. Horn served Presbyterian churches in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Buffalo before beginning work in 1986 as executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches. During his seven years with the council, he initiated new ministries in interreligious dialogue, environmental awareness, health care reform, economic justice, and racial inclusivity. In 1993, he became co-pastor at Montview Boulevard Presbyterian Church in Denver, where he preached this sermon. Now, what about sharing my dad's last sermon via podcast? On the one hand, this is my own family's anniversary I'm drawing you all into, which may seem a little strange. On the other hand, dad never shied away from an audience. A sermon, after all, is a public performance and I know he would have loved to have all you beautiful folk in the congregation. On the morning of the day he died, one of his Sunday school students, who knew Dad had been suffering with cancer for some months, reportedly complimented him on how well he looked. That, my father replied, is because I'm a showman. If you listen carefully to the recording, which I've done my best to clean up, you can hear his labored breathing. Certain words and phrases carry extra weight if you believe, as I do, that he knew his last hours were at hand. All the more reason, I think, to pass these words along. Once in a while, I worry that I've created the impression among point of learning listeners that my dad was just someone who sat around reading a Christmas carol all the time. What follows is far more representative of his life's work, and as timely a message today as it was 25 years ago. One last prefatory note. Dad refers at one point to a quotation by a noted football coach that he's included in the bulletin. I can't seem to locate the bulletin in my files, but the spirit of the quote is something like the line attributed to Vince Lombardi. Uh, Winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Something like that. This will make sense later, I promise. Anyway, here's Dad reading the gospel lesson that he takes as his principal text, and then moving right into Jesus' playbook.
Please continue to listen for God's word to you as I read from the Gospel according to St. Luke in the fourth chapter. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, returned to Galilee. This takes place right after our Lord's temptation in the wilderness. And a report about him spread throughout all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. May God bless to our understanding these readings from Holy Scripture. And to God's name be the praise and the glory forever. Anybody who spent much time poking around in the New Testament will have noticed its fondness for metaphor. In fact, the greatest single problem with biblical literalism, whether you come from the fundamentalist perspective or from the perspective, say, of the Jesus Seminar, is trying to figure out what to do with the metaphors. They come in all varieties, agricultural, mercantile, military, familial, physiological, political, and, of course, athletic. Both of our lessons today are heavily metaphoric. Very little technical theological language in there, and therefore easier to understand than a lot of the things in the Bible. Also more suggestive about ways to go in preaching them. Now today there's only one way that any preacher hereabouts who has not been living in a cave should go with them. Hence my title, Jesus Playbook. Who of us has not seen that testimonial in which a burly football player drops down to one knee and proclaims that Jesus is my quarterback? Now, I used to scoff at that, but it's as good a metaphor as most of the stuff Paul uses about running the race. And it's good because everyone knows what he means. Jesus is calling the plays. Maybe we can run them and maybe we can't. There are blocks and sacks and fumbles and interceptions. But every school child knows who the quarterback is, 
what he does and what we're supposed to do if we're on the team. And so really, it's a wonderful metaphor. Maybe not snazzy enough to wind up in a creed anytime soon, but, you know, the jury's still out on such things. Some, of course, may object to football as a metaphor for the Christian life. Columnist George Will complains that it combines the two worst things about America. Football, he writes, is violence punctuated by committee meetings. <laughs> Be that as it may, the test is whether a metaphor communicates. We can push any of them too far. Ignatius Loyola reminded us that ultimately they all hobble on three legs. So, as tough as testimonials may be for Presbyterians, let us all drop to one knee this morning, metaphorically speaking, of course, and take Jesus as our quarterback. This gospel, where he outlines his ministry, there in the synagogue of his own hometown, is as close as we're going to come to a playbook for the Savior of the world. Let's see how it works itself out in terms of our day and time. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Oh, his mother would have been so proud. Jesus had to have learned that at her knee. It is so reflective of her response to the angel's announcement of his birth as virtually to be a summary of the Magnificat. And so in her honor, let's call this play the Hail Mary. Oh, you've heard of that one. <laughs> so you know how it works. Jesus gets the snap. Everybody runs like mad. Jesus throws long, closes his eyes, and prays. But what does that have to do with good news to the poor? Just this. The poor is all of us. We're all included in that first play. How? Because there is some poor part of each of us that needs some good news. See, I'm convinced that Jesus was not just talking about the economically poor although they were certainly included. If you look at the rest of the Gospels, you'll see that some of the poorest folk in there tended to have more of the world's goods than they knew what to do with. The rich young man, the lawyer who wanted to know who my neighbor is, and Simon the Pharisee who wouldn't even offer to have Jesus' feet washed. Their poverty lay in their obsessiveness, their self-righteousness, their elitism. Where does our poverty lie? I can't answer that for you, nor you for me, and you better not try. But Jesus' first play is meant to get the good news to the poor parts of each of us. 
This is Ecumenical Sunday, so-called. It's the last day of the week of prayer for Christian unity, a time that the church uses to recall what is common to us all, but also where each of us is impoverished relative to the unity for which Jesus prayed. Our poverty can be corporate as well as individual. I'm never so grateful for the worldwide church as when I see who even other Presbyterians are and how enthusiastically they worship and work around the globe. They are on fire for the gospel. We might even mistake them for Baptists or, or Pentecostals. They may not possess our great theological clarity about everything, but God knows we could use some of their spiritual passion. At the very least, the good news of which Jesus spoke shows us what we have to learn from each other, what we have to give each other. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. I didn't say that, and you didn't hear it. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Now, I don't know here whether we're talking about a draw play or a trap or just some really good interference, but Jesus intends to free us up. Again, some folks might try to get out from under this by assuming that he's talking only about people in prison. They're obviously included. What's not so obvious is what release is going to look like for them. But if this play is for you and me, then it is the captive parts of each of us that Jesus means to release. The prisons of addiction and of enmity and of fear are not foreign to any of us. I suspect, however, we're far likelier to spot their symptoms in others than in ourselves. We may, in fact, have developed a rich loathing for the traps others succumb to, not realizing that they reflect precisely what we hate about ourselves. Perhaps the footwork here is, is like a double reverse. First, the log in our own eye has to go. And then the splinter in our neighbor's eye, and only then can we see that she is our sister. Speaking of seeing, he has sent me to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. Is this getting easier or harder? We're obviously not talking here about white canes and seeing eye dogs, got beyond that. We're talking about why a quarterback sneak works time and time again, why there's always a fake or two or three in every game that seems to go off rather well. You and I see what we expect to see, what we are trained to see, what we are looking for, and vice versa. All of our short-sightedness and bias and prejudice stem from this kind of blindness. A good football player always expects the unexpected. 
looks for the unusual, anticipates that things are not going to be as they appear or go according to preconceptions. Now, a follower of Jesus needs to do the same. As wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, he describes it in another place. If everybody else is looking left, you look right. If their eyes are up watching for a pass, you look straight ahead for the run. If they're all saying, he looks guilty as sin, you say, I don't have enough information yet to form an opinion. Oh, what a blessing it would be if the next space shuttle took all the pollsters to the moon. Now, now this is a bigoted statement because, of course, it's a glittering generalization. But I frankly see very little difference between making determinations by anonymous polling and giving ourselves over to mob rule. It cancels thoughtful investigation and reasoned debate. It is the blind leading the blind. And as Jesus says, when that happens, all of us fall into a ditch. He has sent me to let the oppressed go free. Now, can you see where this is taking us? Jesus is pushing us to think outside the box, as the expression goes. This item from his playbook doesn't have anything to do with a, a formation or a pattern, but with how we play the game itself. Another way to talk about it would be to say, let's play a no penalty game. The reason I put that obnoxious quote from a noted football coach there at the top of your bulletin is that all of us are tempted in the heat of the moment to forsake principle and rule and to try to pull something illegal in hopes that it won't be noticed. Temptation is there for us all. Oppression happens only when the rules are bent or broken. We talk all the time about a level playing field. And the more I hear people talk about it, the more I wonder what it is they really want. Dear brothers and sisters, the playing field is level. Creation is good. God is love. The rules are the same for everyone. Oppression happens only when we ignore that when we take unfair advantage, when we cut corners or sell short or water down the product or kick the other guys, well, you get my point. So Jesus reminds us here, as though we didn't know it already, that the rules are in place, spelled out clearly, and that we are not really playing the game if we don't observe them all the time. Moreover, if things are going as they should, it is not the other guy who finally is oppressed when we ignore the rules, but ourselves. The penalty is lodged against us. We are the guilty, the ones who are violating the goodness of creation by causing others 
pain and dislocation, it is finally ourselves who are hurt. Well, there's that word that you've all been waiting for, finally. This is Jesus' last point, and so it's going to be mine as well. He has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is calling a timeout. That's what this verse means. It refers to the year of Jubilee, which was to be a time when all scores were nullified, all bets were canceled, and all the little pieces of the giant monopoly game we've turned life into get put back in the box. Finally, the clock runs out, doesn't it? But even before then, when things get too hot and heavy, the clock can be stopped. People can huddle up, reconnoiter, take stock, catch their collective breath. I like to think of Sunday mornings around here as a time for that. When we do things together that we don't do it at any other time. We sing and pray and reflect and maybe weep a little or doze off during the sermon. Whatever happens, our workaday clock stops and we make a conscious effort to think about what life would be like if Jesus really was our quarterback. Because do you know what? That's what he promised there at the beginning of his ministry. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, not just because it's Super Bowl 32. Today is every day that we hear his voice calling the plays and do all we can to run them wherever we are. Amen, and that's it for today's show. If you're curious, the Broncos won 31 to 24, even though the Packers were favored by 11. As I said, blessings abound. Thanks to my family for supporting the choice to share the final sermon. Thanks, as always, to Schaefer James for intro and outro music. Montview organist Barbara Hulak played the chimes. Thanks to you for listening, rating, five stars, reviewing, and supporting the show any way you can, including sharing with somebody who might be interested. Point of Learning is written, recorded, edited, mixed, and mastered by me here in sunny Buffalo, New York. I'm Peter Horn, and I'll be back soon with author and education advocate Jonathan Kozel speaking about his forthcoming book, Batter Down the Walls. Go in peace, and may the Holy God surprise you on your way. Christ Jesus be your companion, and the Spirit lift up your life. Amen. <laughs>